0: Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, today, Bruce is going to be preaching out of Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 1 and ending in 18. Um, in the Pew Bibles, if you are requiring one, um, it begins at the bottom of page 5, or excuse me, 359 and begins, moves quickly on to 360. Today, Bruce is going to be beginning a new series called Money Matters. So, if you will follow along with me as I read. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on tablets of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the firstfruits of your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, or detest his correction, for whom the Lord loves he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Happy is the man who finds wisdom, and the man who gains understanding, for her proceeds are better than the profits of silver, and her gains than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, in her left riches, and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you right now and we thank you for this opportunity to gather as a congregation of Christ followers to meet together, to go over and worship you, God. Thank you for this chance to be able to read this insightful passage god offering advice to us i pray that you would give bruce the words to speak so that may grant a great impact to us in the beginning of this year god thank you for all you've done for us
1: today and in the future in your name amen well here it is the very first sunday of the new year and i think we uh, we need some good news right It's always nice to start out the new year with some good news, but perhaps we also have bad news. And unless your head was in the sand last night, the Chiefs once again put us in the pit of misery. Let's let's just all take a deep sigh. My brother and Todd, my brother Todd, and his son Zach went to the game, and uh, Lida back there went to the game. I asked Lida how was the game, and she just went... The pit of misery. But here's the good news. Listen, if you're with Team Jesus, we win. (laughs) Team Jesus wins. So if you're a Christ follower here, I read the end of the book. Revelation tells us that we win in the end. So even though the chiefs keep putting us in the pit of misery, Team Jesus wins and we're excited about that. Also think about this bit of good news. Here it is, the first Sunday of the year. That means everyone here right now has perfect attendance in church. For some of you, that is new territory. We'll leave it at that. You know, January is typically a time for really all things new. A new diet, a new workout, with the hopes of a new you. One person posted on Facebook this prayer, Dear God, My prayer for 2018 is a fat bank account and a thin body. Please don't mix it up again like you did last year. (laughs) Perhaps you're praying that prayer this year. Well, today we're starting a new four-week series during the month of January on stewardship, simply called Money Matters. Because money really does matter in a lot of different ways. In fact, research says that we spend about 50% of our time thinking about money. How to make it and how to spend it. And so it's not surprising that God's word is filled with stories about money. Stories about how to make it, how to spend it, how to save it, and yes, even how to give it away. In fact, the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke, One out of every six of those verses has to do with the topic of money, either directly or indirectly. In 16 out of 38 parables that Jesus told, money is involved in those parables. In fact, there are over 2,300 verses in the Bible that relate specifically to either wealth or possessions or money in some shape, fashion, or form. And so this means you can't read the Bible, God's Word, very long without realizing, you know what, money matters. It matters to me, and obviously it matters to God Himself. And so for that reason... We want to find out what God has to say about money matters. Listen, we all understand what our culture says, what our world says, either family, friends, neighbors. They have their own ideas, and they're not bashful about advertising that, if you will, about what money says, how to deal with it, how to make it, earn it, spend it, you name it. But we, as Christ followers, we want God's insight. We want His Wisdom on money matters. Now, this is a stewardship series on wealth, on money. So perhaps we ought to begin with that question, what exactly are we dealing with? What are we talking about when we use this word stewardship? Well, notice in your notes coming up on the screen, you're welcome to follow along in that. uh, If you pull out that insert in your bulletin and, and take notes if you want to. But notice this, stewardship is simply the management of wealth. It's the management of the wealth that God has entrusted to me. And that wealth can be either monetary or material things that he's entrusted to me for his glory, others people's good and my joy. Now, there are two questions that I want us to answer when it comes to the stewardship of wealth here this morning. And that is... How should we see wealth, and how should we use wealth? Proverbs is a great place to start in answering questions about wealth. For starters, there are a lot of verses in Proverbs that deal with the subject of wealth and money. If you started with Genesis, you might conclude that God always prospers his people. And while he does some people, he doesn't always for all people. If you started with the minor prophet book of Amos, you might think that all rich people are simply oppressors. They're bad, and that's not true either. But Proverbs looks at wealth from several different points of view, several different angles. And so Proverbs gives us a very broad scope of God's wisdom on the subject of wealth. Now, obviously, here this morning, we don't have time to look at all of those views, all of those angles of what God says about wealth. We're going to, in particular, dive into two perspectives, or two views, or two aspects of wisdom about it. In fact, Proverbs 3 here, which we're going to be focusing in, in, in particular, verses three 9 through 10, is part of a, conversation between King Solomon and one of his sons. Some of you have heard of the name King Solomon, you're familiar with him. Uh, If you're not, that's okay. He was one of the wisest and wealthiest men in all the world. And so he not only speaks from experience, but what he shares with his son through the book of Proverbs is actually God's wisdom. And so it's in our best interest to pay heed to this conversation, if, to listen in, if you will, because this is a conversation between Solomon and his son that, we are, that is recorded for us in chapter 3, and it begins with this general exhortation from the father to son in verses 1 through 2, and I love how it starts. Dads, if you're a dad here, you can relate to this. He simply says, my son. That is a term of endearment, a term of love, a term of concern. And he's begging his son, listen to what I have to say. This is for your own good, in your own best interest, and for your well-being. I know what I'm talking about. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. And then what follows in the rest of chapter 3 is a series of commands and exhortations and even promises that Solomon gives his son to teach him how to live a long and successful life here on this earth. These instructions teach one dominating theme. And that is this, true success in life is a direct result of a proper attitude toward God. In other words, Solomon's reminding his son, your view of God, how you see God, how you think about God, how you relate to God, how you submit yourself to God in His ways determines everything. That is the foundation of this. And in that regard, all of the godly wisdom that Solomon teaches his son, and by virtue teaches us here this morning, can be summarized. You can boil it all down to two verses here in Proverbs 3, and that is verses 5 through 6. Familiar words here to some of us, where King Solomon says, Trust in the Lord with all your hearts. And lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. But Solomon did not simply exhort his son to acknowledge the Lord in all his ways. Solomon goes beyond that. He also taught him specific ways in which he should acknowledge the Lord. And I want us to focus on two of those ways in which we acknowledge God as our creator, as our heavenly father, as our Lord, as the one who is sovereign in our lives. This is how, two ways we acknowledge him when it comes to the stewardship of our wealth. The first way is to see wealth with the right perspective. To see it with the right perspective. Solomon states this perspective, the biblical perspective, in verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Or some of your translations may say, honor the Lord with your possessions. This command affirms the right of private ownership. In other words, God does not mind you having money, having possessions, or what the term we are using, wealth. The call to godliness does not require a vow of poverty. You don't have to be broke, in other words, to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. That is not what Solomon's saying here. This verse affirms that it's not wrong for godly people to have wealth, to be blessed with wealth. In fact, this text does not assume that godliness and poverty are synonymous In fact, the connection here between this command in verse 9 and the promise that we have in verse 10 assumes that godliness usually results in prosperity and not poverty. So this verse teaches us that godliness is not determined by the amount of money one has or doesn't have. That is not the issue of godliness. Rather, It is determined by our attitude towards money. That is the issue he's making. And he's saying this, godly people know that when God blesses them or honors them with wealth, we are then to honor God with our wealth. Godly people know that God is the one who enables us to gain wealth. Wealth is a gift of God. And Solomon reminds us in another book that he wrote in Ecclesiastes 5.19, look what it says in your notes. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. Now, obviously there's a challenge here to us. The challenge is, That in our sinfulness, we have a strong propensity to make wealth an idol. Solomon, though, does something for us here. He is showing us the right perspective to have when it comes to wealth, so we don't make it an idol. So that instead, we honor God with it, instead of worshiping it. Although it was a noble idea to print in God We Trust on the U.S. dollar, the irony is most people trust in their wealth far more than they trust in their creator. Money is the focus of their worship. It's the focus of their lives. It's... They people are consumed with making it so they can then spend it. And yet Solomon reminds us that money isn't everything. He gives us two perspectives here. And the first is this. Wealth is a poor source of happiness. Look what Solomon says about the value of wisdom. And what Solomon's doing, if you will, he's... He's comparing and contrasting the value of wealth in some ways with this value of wisdom. Look what he says in verses 13 and 15 again. He says, blessed or happy are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding. And then Solomon personifies wisdom when he uses, when he says this, for she, so that That pronoun there, she, is the personification of wisdom. For she, she, wisdom is more profitable than silver. Now that is counterculture, right? Our culture does not say that. In fact, she, wisdom is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. And then... Verse 16 through 18, long life is in her hand. In her hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She, again, wisdom is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. That's the value of wisdom that Solomon wants his young son to grab hold of. And he wants us as Christ followers to grab hold of it. These verses teach us that wealth attained through applying God's wisdom is ultimately way, way more satisfying than wealth that is attained by applying our own wisdom, the world's ways, if you will. Now, does that mean your bank account necessarily will be a great deal larger if you pursue God's wisdom? No, that's not exactly what Scripture teaches us here. That would affirm that the amassing of wealth is the way to happiness when it's not. Pursued apart from God's wisdom, the amassing of wealth is a path of foolishness, Solomon reminds us. Instead, true satisfaction lies in seeking to live by God's wisdom in all of our ways. Yes, the world it can certainly give you a shallow, material sense of happiness. But only God can give you wisdom that leads to a life that is deeply satisfying, that is fulfilling and meaningful, that goes beyond the temporal to the eternal. And so Solomon is reminding us here, he's sharing this nugget of wisdom with us. He says, get the right perspective about wealth in which comes from God, in which God does enable us to gain it, and he blesses us with it. The second perspective is, wealth is a rich source of temptation. Oh, how easy it is to set our hearts on wealth, to worship it, which in turn draws us into sin. You go to the New Testament and there, In writing to young Timothy, Paul recalls how he has seen the love of money bring grief and disillusionment to Christians, even causing them to wander from their faith in God. And Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love or the craving, the desire of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so we must admit that wealth is a rich source of temptation. No wonder then that Proverbs 28, 6 reminds us, Better the poor whose walk is blameless than the rich whose ways are perverse. Truly, the craving of wealth is a root of all kinds of evil. And so the first wisdom principle from Solomon is, we need to see wealth with a proper perspective, with the right perspective, a biblical perspective. Wealth is a gift from God, but it's not everything. It has limits. And yet... Solomon goes on and he gives us another nugget of wisdom here when it comes to wealth. The second wisdom principle helps us to use our wealth in a right way. To use it for God's glory, other people's good, and our joy. Use wealth for the right purpose. So we need to see it with the right perspective. But now Solomon tells us, use wealth. Whatever wealth, the amount of your wealth is not the issue. Whatever God has allowed you to have, to gain, whatever he has blessed you with, take that and use it for the right purpose. Notice what Solomon says in verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. In this one verse, Solomon tells us how to use our wealth for the right purpose. And notice that purpose is to honor the Lord. That's the purpose. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Now, this is one of the most direct statements in Proverbs about how to worship God. This word honor that's translated here is the Noun form of the word that is used for the glory of God. Which means to honor the Lord is to glorify the Lord. And this is the heart of true worship. Worship is not about me and my needs. It is about God and His glory. And so to worship the Lord is to honor the Lord. But how are we to do that? Well, Solomon doesn't leave us guessing. He doesn't leave it to ourselves to determine that. He tells us specifically. And notice that Solomon does not tell us in this verse to honor the Lord by singing praises to him. By offering prayers to the Lord, or even receiving instruction from the Lord. Instead, Solomon goes beyond what you do at God's house, and he addresses what you do at your house. Honor the Lord with your wealth. He's very specific here. Now, this is an important statement about the divine purpose of wealth. Maybe this has never crossed your mind before, but have you ever wondered... Why does God enable us to gain wealth? The most obvious answer, if we're honest, is almost always self centered. We think that God gives us wealth to meet our own needs. And while there is an element of truth to that, it's not the whole truth. Instead, God the Father provides for the needs of His children, but this is not the primary reason why God provides wealth for His children. This is proven by the fact that God also provides, oftentimes, more than we need. Why do you think God does that? You may think that God gives us more than we need to meet our goals, fulfill our dreams, satisfy our wants. But to think this way only exposes, again, if we're honest, how spoiled we are and how selfish we really are at heart. You see, the Lord has provided for more, oftentimes, a lot of times, He's provided more than our basic needs so that we might use it to spread the gospel to all nations. To advance the mission of God's kingdom and to meet the needs of his people. And in our economy today, that God specifically says, that is done through the local church in the New Testament. This is why God blesses us. Or to put it in the language of Proverbs 3, 9, the Lord provides wealth so that we might honor him with it. Just because God puts... His wealth in your hands does not mean he intends for it to stay with you, all of it. No, no, no. God wants us to honor him with our wealth. Again, how do we do that, though? Well, there's an application to how we do that. It brings us to the practice. So we see the purpose of wealth is to honor the Lord. And now Solomon brings us to the practice of that. We honor the Lord with our wealth when we faithfully give our first fruits. Solomon says in verse 9 honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Now, honoring the Lord with our wealth. That's the foundational principle of wise stewardship. The second part of verse 9 is the application of that principle. In other words, the second part of verse 9 explains how we do the first part of verse 9. It defines the way in which we honor the Lord with our wealth. And in this case, Solomon says, by giving our first fruits. Now that brings us to an obvious question, what in the world are first fruits? Not a term we are familiar with, it's not a term we use every day in our culture. The concept of giving first fruits was based upon the agricultural economy of Israel. It was the way they, the children of Israel, it was the way they honored the Lord with their wealth. In other words, they gave the first and the best of their crops. In fact, it also included the best and the first of their flocks. So you can think of crops and flocks. Their garden, their harvest, but also their herds, their sheep, their goats, their their animals, their livestock. Solomon focuses on the crops here. In fact, according to Leviticus 23, 9-14, the Israelites were required to give God the first fruits of all their crops. 2 Chronicles 31 tells us the children of Israel brought in abundance the first fruits of grain and wine, oil and honey, and of all the produce of the field, and they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. Now, the last time I checked, we don't give the first fruits of our crops or our flocks to the Lord. And I'm thankful for that. Because the last time we had a little garden in our backyard, it was pretty sad. There wouldn't have been much to give. In our economic structure, we are to give the first fruits of our income, paychecks. Reminds me of the story of the little girl who was given two dollars by her father. And he told her she could do anything she wanted with one of the dollars, but the other was to be given to God on Sunday at church. Well, the girl nodded in agreement and asked if she could go to the candy store. And so with visions of all that she could buy with that one little dollar, she happily skipped toward the store, holding tightly to the two dollars in her hand. And as she was skipping along, she tripped and fell, and the wind blew one of the dollars into a storm drain. Picking herself up, the little girl looked at the dollar still in her hand, and then at the storm drain and said, well, Lord, there goes your dollar." Oh, how easy it is to have the same attitude in our own giving. First me, then God. But what does Proverbs 3, 9 say? First God, then me. You see, the most obvious implication of the term first fruits is that we are to give God what? First We are to honor God with the first fruits of our income, not the leftovers. But that's what a lot of people give to God, simply their leftovers. In fact, when the giving habits of Christians are studied, they find that most Christians give only what they feel like they can spare. What's available because it's what's left over. They take their paycheck or their income, whatever the case may be, and they take care of their bills, their needs, their wants, and if they have anything left, then they might give some to the Lord. But God is not honored by our leftovers. God desires, in fact, he deserves the first fruits of our income. Now, why is that? Why is this so important here? Why is the practice of giving first fruits so important to a God who has everything and who owns everything? It's not like he needs it, right? Is he like the child who has to get the very first piece of the birthday cake, otherwise he will cry and pout? Is that the way our God is? No. Notice this in your notes. The practice of giving first fruits activates our faith. And it magnifies God's worth. Imagine, if you will, the Israelite farmer who is totally dependent upon the forces of weather that are completely outside of his control. He has nothing to spare and almost no margin in life. And now imagine what kind of faith was required to bring in a harvest of crops for that farmer which you and your family depend for your very life and livelihood, and to have God now ask you to give the first and the best of that crop. To not first meet your own needs with it, but to give it to God for his provision, his purposes in the world. Giving leftovers, by contrast, listen, it requires no faith at all. You don't have to trust God to provide if you already have the provision you need. You can give to God what you have as a leftover which you don't need. And as a result, our faith stays dormant. When we only give out of our leftovers, there's no risk in that. There's no dependence on God to provide in that. You keep your financial situation under control, and you see precisely how the money will meet the needs. But when you give the first fruits of your income, then you put yourself in a position of having to look to God to come through for you. And that activates faith. This is why, as a general rule, people who give generously almost always have a strong and vibrant faith in the Lord. They are actively casting themselves on God for his provision, asking him to meet all their needs to enable them to live and to give generously to others. And this experience of trusting God for provision and then watching God provide does so much to strengthen our faith. When we give our first fruits, though, we are not only activating our faith, but we are also in the same act of worship we are magnifying God's worth. This practice of giving first fruits began in the Old Testament as a response to God's redemption of Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. Moses tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy 26 So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. With great terror and with signs and wonders, he brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. You see, because God had saved the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt and brought them into the promised land, they gave him in response their first fruits. Similarly, when we give the first fruits of our wealth, our income, we are expressing something. We're expressing gratitude for our deliverance from the bondage of sin through the work of Jesus Christ. Honoring God with the first fruits of our wealth, folks, listen to me. Whether you are a young junior hire, a teenager, who gives simply out of the wealth of your chores and your your, uh, allowance or a little money you make, or whether you are in your 60s and you give in your 70s and you give out of your retirement, or you're somewhere in between, listen to me, it doesn't matter. Whatever you give out of your wealth, that is an act of worship to the Lord. And we are magnifying God's worth, and we are offering thanks for our redemption through Him in Jesus Christ. The bottom line is that the first portion of everything you receive belongs to God. And God is honored by your wealth when you give back to Him first. Solomon begins verse 9 with a command to obey. He says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. It ends in verse 10 with a promise though. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. We could summarize the promise this way by application. If you honor God with your wealth, God will honor you with his provisions. Almost every time, do you realize this? Almost every time the Bible talks about giving, It also emphasizes receiving. That's amazing. In fact, the phrase, be filled, in verse 10 here, is in the imperfect tense, which simply means that it's an ongoing process. In other words, as I continue to honor God with my wealth, God keeps on providing, and I keep on receiving. Now, that is an amazing promise. In fact, it's a supernatural promise God makes when we demonstrate our trust in God by giving Him the first fruits of our income. You say, how does it work? I don't know how it works. I just know that after giving for over 25 years, that it works. At the same time, this proverb does not teach us that giving is somehow this supernatural fixed lottery where you buy a ticket and you always win. This promise is not a guarantee of abundant wealth, material prosperity, and worldly success, but God does promise in Philippians 4.19 to do what? To supply all your needs through His riches in Christ. The Lord assures us that as we honor him in our giving, we will not find ourselves coming up short on what we need. Now, although this promise is guaranteed by God himself, listen, it still requires faith on our part. In fact, I would suggest that God's promise requires upfront faith. God is saying, through the wisdom and insight of King Solomon here, you begin to honor me with your wealth with the first fruits of your income and I will bless you I will provide for you in response and if you're like most people we want to say uh you know Lord how about if you bless me first and then I'll give you as you want me to give and God says no it doesn't work that way it's like Peter walking on water you've got to step out of the boat and take that first step of faith And so if you're holding back on giving until God blesses you, can I suggest that you have it backwards? God makes an incredible promise when it comes to honoring him with our wealth. But it all comes down to one key question. Will I trust God? God is worthy of your trust in every circumstance of life, including the practice of giving the first fruits of your income. Now, I also fully recognize that to some here today, giving the first fruits of your income may sound rather daunting, perhaps even scary, because right now, You are calculating in your mind the family budget and all your expenses and all the other financial obligations and you simply can't see how it's possible. Listen, if that's how you're feeling, that's understandable. And that's why I love what Solomon says in verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths." That's the key to honoring God with our wealth. That's the key to giving the first fruits of your income. Trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. I'd like to share with you, a stewardship plan, and I've shared this in the past before, a stewardship plan that absolutely works and honors God at the same time. It's a plan that my wife and I have tried to follow. I say tried because we have not followed this perfectly by any imagination. But we have tried to follow this stewardship plan since we first got married 26 years ago. It's called the 10-10-80 plan. How many have heard of it? Several. It's a great stewardship plan to live by. The 10-10-80 plan, it simply means that we give the first 10% of our income to God, and then we save the next 10%, either long-term or retirement savings, whatever, and then we live on the 80% that's left. Hence, it is called the 10 10 80 plan, give the first 10%, save the second 10%, live on the 80%. Now, obviously, through life, the seasons of life, these percentages might change a little bit. My wife had been, we, we've been at a place in our life where we, we try to live now on, on 70 to 75%, and give a little more than 10%, save a little more, whatever the case may be in our first year of marriage though we committed to live by this stewardship plan and we basically made that decision as a husband and wife where this is how we're going to do it this is what we're going to do we're going to give we're going to try to follow this simple plan in our first year of marriage I was 24 my wife was 27 at the time and I have to admit in the beginning of our marriage it wasn't always easy to live by this plan In fact, it stretched our trust in God a lot because back then we got married. Darla brought the beauty and I brought the debt. And it was a struggle to give and to save and to live and pay bills and make ends meet. But I can honestly say that after 26 years of living by this simple stewardship plan, God has blessed us in so many different ways. We've never gone hungry. We've always had clothes to wear, a place to live, cars to drive. And then God has blessed us above and beyond with the extra things in life. And I just had another illustration of that this week. Where God blessed abundantly in my life. Above and beyond what I could ever imagine. And I'm speaking financially. I shared it with my boys, and they were like, oh. "As parents, we have also tried to teach our boys this same exact plan." When the boys were young, they they each had three envelopes. In fact, I I still have these envelopes. These are Jack's envelopes. I recommend this to you parents if you have little kids. It's called the envelope system of the 10-10-80 plan. And on the front of each envelope, it has Jack's name in the corner in it. The first one obviously is, it, it, it has written here, giving to Jesus. The second envelope says saving for the future. The third envelope says spending for needs and wants course, when you're six years old, 12 years old, you don't have a lot of needs. It's pretty much spending for once. And so anytime my boys would get some money, whether, and this was hard, oh, they fought me on this. Even their grandma fought me on this at times. Because whenever they got Christmas money, birthday money, whenever they, they earn money by doing, mowing the yard or whatever, I would make them take the cash and put it in these three envelopes. And when there was money in this envelope for giving to Jesus, I would then get a giving envelope, and I would make them fill it out. In their own handwriting at six years old, you fill it out. You physically, you put the money in. You lick it and seal it. And Darla, you make sure they bring it to church. (laughs) When this envelope would get enough money in it for saving, we would go down to the bank. I'd take them inside the bank. I'd make them fill out the deposit slip, 10, 12 years old, showing them how to do it. You go up to the teller, put it up there, and you deposit the money and get the receipt. You know what? And they, and they, have, the, they have savings accounts in their own name, and you know quarterly they get the statements, and, and I'd give it to them. i said, open it up, open it up, Jack, see how much money you've got in the bank. Oh, man, Dad, look how much. And they're all excited about that. Of course, now they want to spend it. In fact, Tyler took some of his, and when he graduated from high school, he, you know, he bought, he's going to college, he bought a, some important stuff. He's saving it for school, bought a computer. Jack has yet to, I, have, I haven't let Jack touch his long-term savings yet. <laughs> Keep telling me, maybe for a car. We'll see. We'll see. And then when it comes to spending, parents, you know, you do it your own way, but this is just how Darling and I did it. When it came to spending their money, I pretty much let them spend it however they want. I try to give them some guidance along the way, and in particular, one child I always had to give a lot of guidance to. And, uh, you know, some parental guidance on how to spend it, but pretty much, you know what, however you want to spend If you want to blow the whole wad on that, go for it. Because that's how you learn the value of money. You spend it all now, and then when you really want something, you don't have it, and they're coming to me, I'm like, well, you just spent it all there, you should have saved it. Great tools. Now, that doesn't mean, and there are no guarantees, parents, that your kids will actually live by this principle once they kind of get under your authority out on their own. Tyler's 20. He doesn't have envelopes anymore. Hopefully he's doing this on his own. Jack's 16. I still monitor it, but there's coming a point in his life where that's going to be outside of me, and that's now they are becoming, un- they, will, they will have to be accountable to God in how they steward the wealth that God gives them. Does that make sense? So some wise nuggets from King Solomon here to his son, and by way of application to all of us here this morning. Take heed, take heed, money matters. matters to us, it matters to God. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your grace. And that's what we are most thankful for. Lord, we are rich in it. Because you have provided it in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom of King Solomon to his son. May we pay heed to this. Lord, grant us a heart's desire to honor you with the wealth that you entrust us. Help us to trust you with everything we have and to give back to you, to give the first fruits of our income in honor of you and as an expression of gratitude. Knowing, Lord, that you will honor us. You will provide for our every needs. Maybe not always the way we want, maybe not always when we want it, but Lord, we can depend on you as our Heavenly Father. And so work in our hearts even now, Lord, as we take time to reflect and to respond on what we have heard here as the praise team sings. In your name we pray. Amen.